have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 9 as we continue making our way through the gospel. According to Luke, we're going to be in verses 37 through 50 uh, this morning. Luke 9, 37 through 50. One aspect of Christianity that you may find surprising, you may not, uh, is that the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done, it reorients every part of our lives. Literally, the gospel changes how we understand ourselves. It changes how we understand life. It changes how we understand others and how we understand the world around us with all of the events that take place every single second. One aspect of our lives that is impacted by our knowledge and our understanding of the gospel is the concept or the topic of greatness. Greatness. And this is something that our world, that our culture, that we as human beings pursue in various ways, but it's something that is also always changing. Think about this. The Guinness Book of World Records has to be published again and again and again. I don't know if they still publish it. I'm sure they do. But when we were kids, back in my day, young people, uh, in the school library, they had the Guinness Book of World Records year after year after year. And of course, I was drawn to it because it had pictures and not just words. And so I didn't have to read it, right? But records are set and then records are broken. Records are set and then records are broken in different areas as people pursue greatness and whatever weird things they're trying to set records in, right? We enjoy and we pursue as humans the limits of exploration, the limits of adventure as far as modern technology will take us in the pursuit of greatness. In our academic pursuits, or our professional pursuits, or our athletic pursuits, everywhere we look, we see greatness upheld as a virtue to be pursued, as a virtue to be praised. This time of year, resolutions are made for the new year in pursuit of greatness in one area of life or another, whether it be in our own personal disciplines or whether it be in a personal goal that we set for ourselves. We want to be great. And in today's text, Jesus addresses this very concept of greatness. Yet as Jesus speaks to this concept of greatness or being exceptional, you might think of your own life, or just ordinary people, right? You might think and wonder, well, I don't pursue greatness much in my everyday life, so what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do for me? Well, actually, in God's goodness to us, He reveals to us in Luke chapter 9 a different kind of greatness that, frankly, we are all called to as followers of Christ. As with all of Jesus' teachings, the pursuit of greatness is not optional for us as believers. And so, what Jesus does in his teaching on greatness and how we obtain greatness in this life and how we exemplify greatness in this life, he takes the world's definition, and he does this all of the time, he takes the world's definition and he flips it upside down to give us a true definition of greatness, particularly one that characterizes his disciples, his people, that involves his glory and his grace. 
And so very simply this morning, on the heels of the Mount of Transfiguration, when the future glory of Christ was revealed to three of his disciples, I want us to see this morning that if we behold the glory of Jesus, we will become great. If we behold the glory of Jesus, we will become great. And so my call to you this morning is simply that. Behold the glory of Jesus and become great. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you are physically able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. The Word of God reads in Luke 9, 37 through 50. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, is, least among you all excuse me, is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Pray with me. Gracious God, give us understanding as we approach your word. Use your word to change our hearts. Use your word to mold us more into the image of Christ. Use your word to reorient our own understanding of greatness that has been instilled with us since our conception as we are born into this fallen world. But God, reorient our thinking to line it up in accordance with Your Word so that it impacts not just our Sunday morning together, but each and every aspect of our lives as we live for Your glory, as we serve others, and as we point people to the good news of Jesus Christ. May the Gospel be what? we live for, may it be what we proclaim, and may it be what carries us through the many struggles in this life as we are pilgrims making our way to the celestial city. Be glorified through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
So if you were with us last week, uh, Wesley Peden closed out uh, the year 2023 uh, with an excellent sermon from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, in which has been historically referred to or termed as the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, in order for, in order for us to rightly interpret and understand today's text, it is essential that we read it in light of what took place on the Mount with Jesus, with James, with John, and with Peter, with the unexpected guest of Moses and Elijah. And so up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John had, been, had seen Jesus in unspeakable glory, glory that will be revealed to all at the second coming of Christ following his resurrection and ascension. And it's a glory that not only will be revealed to those who see Christ, but will also be shared with all of those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith. It is the glory, as Wesley pointed out, of a greater exodus by which Jesus will free his people from the bondage of sin and death through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so now the transition from the, the, the verses that give us an account of this story, the preceding verses into this next episode could hardly be more jarring. And so last week, we looked at the glory that is to be revealed, and now the first observation I want to make from this text is that we now look at the grace of the cross of Christ. The grace of the cross of Christ. We're going to see this in verses 37 through 45. So they were, as they were atop the mountain, the disciples were face-to-face with the glory of God in Christ. We see that uh, very clearly revealed to us in the text. Now, as they descend from this mountain, as they descend the next morning, they are met by a startling reminder that the world is still oftentimes an ugly, broken place. Here is a man who approaches them immediately, whose only son has been suffering greatly from demon possession that causes him to have epileptic seizures. And so it's described in heart-wrenching terms, and you can just imagine this in your mind based on the things that you've seen in life. It throws the boy down into convulsions. He foams at the mouth with hardly any relief, the father says. And in this, the son is not only suffering from this terrible physical ailment that is described for us, but we're also told that he's possessed by a demon, and so there's this internal factor, this spiritual factor that is also accompanied with the physical manifestations of this possession. And the father, like any other parent, if you're a parent, you can sympathize with this man exactly, like any other parent, is desperate to help his son. And so in his desperation, he goes to the disciples of Jesus. And remember, in chapter 9, verse 1, the disciples had already been commissioned with authority and empowered with authority over all demons and diseases, yet this man says that the disciples were still unable to assist this man. And so this is such a terrible situation, as you can imagine, that this son and this father are in. 
Well, if you read up to this point, especially us who have been graced with the Word of God for all of our lives, plus some, we, we know the story of Jesus, we know the story of the New Testament. Even if you don't know anything and you've been with us from Luke chapter 1 to where we are now, you may look at this text and go, well, Jesus, He's the one who is able to heal. He is the one who is able to give sight to the blind. He's the one who's even able to raise the dead. We've seen that He is just and compassionate and merciful. How will He respond? Well, surely Jesus will respond in love as he does so many other times because he's Jesus, of course he's going to heal this boy. And we may expect to go, well, Jesus said, come on, let me heal this kid. Glory be to God, and that be the end of it. And maybe for you, though, as it was for me, Jesus' response to this situation is quite perplexing. He doesn't immediately say, bring me the boy. If you look at verse 41, he says... After he's implored to heal this boy by his father, he says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now we got two options here. First option, either Jesus was just really tired, really worn out, maybe hangry a little bit, perhaps sometime up on the top of a mountain camping with Peter really does that to a guy. I'm sure it does, right? I don't know. Or option two, perhaps there's something else going on here. I think we go with option two. There's something else going on here that would lead Jesus to respond in this manner. So Jesus speaks not to this child immediately. He doesn't speak to the demonic forces that are oppressing this child or uh, causing these convulsions to take place, but he speaks to all who are gathered, who he refers to as a faithless and twisted generation. Now, there is some debate as to whether Jesus is specifically addressing the disciples in this instance or if he is addressing the whole gathered crowd. Some say disciples, some say the whole gathered crowd. I tend to think it's the crowd, but I'm not sure we need to decide on who he's talking to in order to understand what he's saying here. And then verse 42, following that bizarre response, verse 42 tells us Jesus rebuked the spirit. The boy was healed and he gave him back to his father. And then verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. So he works the miracle. But now we have to understand what Jesus is revealing in this miracle especially if we're going to take into account his response to these people. So remember this. Notice this in understanding what he's revealing in this miracle. Jesus has come down from the mountain, a mountain of glory, if you will, a mountain of the glory of God. He has re-entered the real world with all of its problems, the world with all of its grief, the human existence with all of its brokenness and even death. And as he descends from the mountain of glory, he sees a father who is brokenhearted over the condition of his son. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 32.5, where it is describing the spiritual condition of the people of Israel who were unrepentant in their idolatry, who God has brought them into a land for His own glory and for their own good, and yet they are worshiping false gods. And what we see here is that Jesus is basically saying that this generation still denies their God. 
They still refuse to trust Him. They still refuse to walk in obedience to Him. And they have actually the same spiritual condition that are gathered here today have, the same spiritual condition as those did back with your ancestors, as you remember from Deuteronomy. That's what Jesus says to this audience when they are looking for a miracle. He says, you're the same as those. Well, why did he say this? What a strange response. Why would this be? Why would he respond in this way? Well, what he is revealing to them is this. And don't miss this. They need a miracle greater than this boy being healed. They need a miracle greater than the physical healing of this boy. Sure, they want this boy healed. They want Jesus to do it. But Jesus is pointing out that they need more than just physical healing. They need more than just the stuff that Jesus can bring to them or give them in life. This boy and his sickness and his infirmity, even in his demon possession, is an illustration, Jesus is saying, of who you really are. You need a miracle greater than just this physical healing. And so what does he do? He heals the boy and then takes the disciples on a journey where we look to the cross where the greater need is met head on. First part of verse 43, they were astonished at the majesty of God. Look at the second part of 43. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not perceive perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. So even as Jesus is teaching them, you need something greater than the physical healing. The Son of Man is about to be delivered. Even as Jesus is teaching them, He also shows them that they will not understand what He is saying at this time. Now let me provide one more Old Testament illustration to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. I got hung up in my study, and maybe you, as you've read this text, if you read beforehand or even now, you read that phrase of verse 45, and you go, well, what exactly does this mean? It really could mean a couple of things uh, if we really get down to it and start to think through it. But let me point you back to Isaiah in order to understand what I think Jesus is saying here. And, and others think otherwise, but this is what I think in this situation, and and you can think otherwise, that's fine, we can have a conversation about that later. But I think as we look back to Isaiah 6, for those familiar with the call of Isaiah the prophet, where Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and he is undone by it. You know this story. He hears the seraphim and he hears the heavenly chorus crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And Isaiah says, Lord, I'm undone. What will you have to do with me? And the Lord cleanses him and the Lord sets him apart and the Lord commissions him as a prophet. And God says that he will, he says, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will go. And so the Lord commissions him out to ministry where he's going to go and proclaim the glory of God. And then as an Old Testament prophet calling back God's people to God, what happens in the commission of Isaiah 6? Well, God tells Isaiah, he says, I'm sending you out, but here's the problem. They're not going to listen to you. Go say this, but the people are not going to listen to you. And in their sinfulness, they need, I'm not going to let them listen to you because they need something greater. 
They need to see something that can accomplish their redemption even greater than being brought out of Egypt. Likewise, Jesus says in verse 44, listen to me. Let this sink in. Some of you probably remember your parents like telling you that, you know, when you were a teenager. You need to let these words sink in, all right? Let this sink in. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now listen, this wasn't the first time Jesus told them this, but their response this time wasn't any different than it was at other times. Why? Well, for one thing, remember, the Jews in their expectation of the Messiah only looked at the royal pomp and the coming of of, uh, a king like David to deliver them and to set them free from bondage to the Roman Empire. And they didn't tie together the suffering servant of God found in the book of Isaiah with the Messiah. That understanding of the Messianic office, as we will see, did not become clear until after the cross. And so what Jesus is saying to us here is that God hid it from them for, their own, for His own purposes. Now let me say this when we think about this boy suffering, and then Jesus pointing to the cross. And we think about Jesus coming down from the mountain of glory, back to this earth that is sin-stricken and riddled with hardship and hurt. One of the questions, one of the struggles, one of the doubts that I have had about the Christian faith in my own life, even as I consider the story about this boy, even as I look out and know many of your stories... It's believing in a God who is infinitely powerful in light of the reality of suffering. I can give you the theological answer, right? We can all give a good biblical theological answer, but when the rubber hits the road, if we're all honest, this is something that we probably struggle with, that we wrestle with, especially because we live. Suffering like we see here, people crippled, People enduring the affliction of terrible physical or mental illness, the pain of brokenness of this world with all that it has, with loss and grief and violence and horrific sin committed by one person against another. And I've thought to myself, when we see things in life, Lord, how can you cause this or how can you allow this to take place or allow this To be, And maybe that's where you are today, or maybe that's where you have been. Maybe you would say, okay, Christianity and this God stuff, it sounds realistic, but I've got a lot of questions for God. I look at the headlines, I look at the news, I live life, and I don't know what to do with these testimonies that God is good with the problems of the world that are not good. And I would be right there with you as there have been many times where my soul was just welled up in confusion where I wondered, what Lord, what are you doing? But the one thing, when we consider this text and what Jesus is teaching, the one thing that keeps me from walking away from the truth of Christianity and the Scriptures is that we have a Savior who did not stay on the mountain. Verse 37 tells us he came down from the mountain. He was met head on with the brokenness and hurt of this world. And he diagnosed a problem that was far greater than the sickness of this child. It was a faithless and twisted people who did not trust in God. And he says to them, you think you need my word pronouncing healing over this boy? But let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, 
is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's prophesying his own death. See, he came down the mountain and the transfigured and glory-filled Christ became the crucified Christ. The glory that he had on the mountain would be replaced by shame as he endured and experienced the nakedness and humility and humiliation of the cross. The transfigured one whose face lit up in glory became the one whose face was bearing the weight of a crown of thorns and was disfigured from the beatings that he endured as he went to the cross. The radiance of the glory of God became torn and bloody garments that thieves pilfered and took for themselves as they were ripped off of Him. He was crucified. And instead of being surrounded in glory by Moses and Elijah, He was surrounded by two criminals enduring crucifixion just as He was. He exchanged the approval and the presence of the Father with Him for the forsakenness of the Father. Enduring the very just wrath of God, and catch this, not for His sins, but for ours. This is what keeps me from walking away when I see the hardships of this life. This is what God did for us in Christ. Church, Jesus didn't just come down from the mountain and identify the problem of evil and sin and then tell us to do something about it. No, Jesus provided the remedy. And when we look at the grace of the cross of the King who came down the mountain and we look ahead at the glory to be revealed when we are brought up the mountain, it is then that we can begin to understand the greatness that comes with humbly beholding our King Jesus. Second observation. Embrace greatness through humility. A response to Christ's glory and grace. Embrace greatness. Embrace greatness through humility. So Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered, and then immediately an argument arose among them as to which would be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put it beside him. He said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. John answered, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. Jesus said, do not stop him. For the one who is great, or excuse me, for the one who is not against you is for you. So this story concludes with two short notes. And again, this isn't a shining moment for the disciples. This whole, this whole deal. It's just not a, it's not one of those where you go, man, those guys are solid, right? It's where you go, man, what is wrong with those guys? So what is the only fitting response for Jesus revealing that he, the very one who was transfigured, would be disfigured on the cross? What is the fitting response? Well, if you look at verse 46, I don't know what the proper response is to that news. I mean, I try to put myself in that situation and go, well, how would I respond? But I know what the wrong response is, and it's what's taking place here. It's what the disciples are doing. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. How do you go from that? 
How do you go from the disciples saying, oh Jesus, I'm sorry you're going to be nailed to a cross. I really hate that. Now, which one of us is going to be the best, the greatest in the kingdom? Sorry you're going to be nailed to a piece of wood. Could you give me some insight? I mean, Peter, he's a good dude, a little rough around the edges. John, he's a pretty good writer, you know, public speaker. James, you know, maybe he's a good dude. Which one of us is going to be the greatest? But before we address this, let me first ask the question. What is wrong with being great? We hear this and we think about greatness in our own lives and we think about accomplishments. We think about various different things that involve greatness. What is wrong with being great? Well, there's two answers to that, both nothing and everything. There's nothing wrong with being great and then there's everything wrong with being great. We are created in the image of God, and as a part of that, we all share this aspiration for significance. I don't think there's anyone in this room right now, anyone who would say that in our lives we want to be considered insignificant, or that our lives haven't counted or are useless. I don't think anyone wants or desires that. I think we all want our lives to count. I think that's just naturally comes to us as being created in the image of God. I think that all of us should aspire to greatness in every area of our lives, especially as Christians. We should work hard. We should pursue whatever it is that you do, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you're uh, working business or finance or, or construction or a doctor. It doesn't matter. You should pursue greatness as Christians. But sometimes, so there's nothing wrong with greatness in that sense of wanting to do things well. But sometimes we may want our lives to count for the wrong reason. And as we do, we become competitive. We become vicious toward those we may consider rivals to us who may receive the promotion that we want or win the championship that we covet. And as that happens, we become envious. We become jealous of them and then we despise them. And to want to be great in faith, to want to be great in service is a noble thing, but to want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God at the expense of other people is characteristic of a twisted and perverse, perverse generation. These three disciples have seen Jesus' greatness in His glory on the mountain and has kind of, it has kind of whetted their appetite for the coming of His kingdom, naturally begin to wonder about their own relative place in that kingdom. And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by His side for an illustration. We see in verse 47, 48. This shows us Greatness was found in humility. And I think humility is only understood by, and when I say humility, I don't mean some kind of false sense of humility. I mean real, true humility. It is only found in beholding the glory of our Savior and being awestruck by the grace of His cross. When you realize that you did not deserve salvation, that even while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you? What do you do when your mind is captivated by the glory of a king who will come back for his people and reign in the fullness of the splendor of God himself? Well, Scripture tells us that in the new creation, it won't even have a sun. Now, you go outside, there's a sun. I don't know, it may be cloudy, you may not see it. There's a sun out there, though, that provides the light. Well, in the new creation, the glory of Christ will be the light by which we live. 
And so when you see and know that your heart is captivated by the Christ who has come and who is to come, you are willingly able and you have the grace of God to humble yourself to serve others in this life. And that is what Christ calls us to do. So maybe you would say, I haven't thought about being great lately. Well, I would submit this is probably because your idea of greatness has been distorted. Do you want to find greatness? Drive down to New Orleans and go to a Taylor Swift concert. Selling out stadiums three days at a time, thousand plus bucks a ticket. Greatness. Maybe Taylor Swift's not your thing. Maybe buy a ticket to the Super Bowl that'll take place in a month. There you will see the greatest football players to play the game, and it'll only cost you $8,000 minimum per ticket. I made that up in my head. I think that's probably close. Think about it like this. We do not pay hard-earned money to see mediocrity. We are captivated. We aren't captivated by mediocrity. We are captivated and moved by greatness and glory. And what Jesus holds up for us here is the way that the gospel helps us to understand that greatness is revealed, evidenced, and illustrated in our lives and in our hearts and in our words toward one another is when we see the glory of Christ and the grace of the cross for what it is. And as we see it, we allow it to take hold of us and to transform our lives as we reflect the glory of Christ, of the Christ we represent. And so Jesus brings this child into the equation because a child can't give you anything. A child has no power, a child has no money, a child has no recognition or accomplishments, a child doesn't cook your meals, maybe that yours do, mine, whatever. Uh, a child doesn't provide your shelter, a child doesn't give you greater social status, a child is a, entirely reliant upon you for care. And he says that when you understand my glory, you will be set apart to serve the needs of those who need to see my glory, who don't need to hear about your glory, they need to see my glory and you'll be able to lift them to, to be able to see into the wonder of Jesus who has come and will come again and who offers them to come to Him by His grace. You see, it's easy, we know this, it's easy to be kind to the rich and powerful because they can bless you back. But Jesus is calling His disciples to imitate Him by showing love to even the very least. And so He calls us to greatness here in a manner of radical humility towards one another that we can't escape, but we have a responsibility to. Because in this radical humility towards one another, putting others' needs above our own, seeking to serve those within our midst and outside of our midst who can give us nothing in return. We evidence before them a Savior who has changed us. And this is what we see in this call to humility and to greatness. Second story, I'm going to be quick here. John answered... You know, we always get on to Peter for putting his foot in his mouth. Well, John answered as if he doesn't want Peter to be the only one who gives some sort of terrible answer. 
It says in verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. It appears that there is someone outside of the 12 or the larger 72 that we'll see later who was casting out demons using the name of Jesus. And John was concerned about this and he wanted Jesus to stop the man from carrying out this ministry that he was doing in the name of Christ. And what he is saying here is, Lord, we know other people might think highly of you, but we know we're the special ones. And so we, we kind of have this service to you. We've kind of got it trademarked. We've kind of got it copyrighted. You know, while, while you were up on that mountain, a couple of the guys, they went, they went to the trademark office. And they took care of this. And they got that stamp of approval. And instead of getting on board with the disciples, Jesus saw a spirit that was contrary to authentic disciples of Christ. He saw a narrow exclusiveness, an attitude that said, if he's not a part of our group in its purest form, then he has nothing whatsoever to do with us. Does this sound familiar? Do we not commit this same offense again and again? And this one stings for some of us. He may claim to be a Christian, but he isn't a Southern Baptist, so we can't trust him. He may claim to be a Christian, but he isn't Reformed, and so we can't trust him. He may claim to be a Christian, but he votes differently, so we can't trust him. He doesn't hold to our view or my view on this particular second-tier theological issue, or you fill in the blank. Many of us do this very thing, or at least we are prone to do this very thing. We are prone to create a box for our own theological ideals and then isolate any and all others who might have a slightly different perspective than us on whatever the issue. Now, do not get me wrong, not everyone who claims Christ is of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that we may have the tendency to become so narrow-minded that we find ourselves slipping into the same territory of the disciples here in this text, needing the soft rebuke but stern rebuke of the Savior that says, for the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus is basically saying to His disciples, do not overestimate who you are in your service to Me. Keep your eyes, keep your heart, keep your soul trusting me. I hope we notice that Jesus doesn't necessarily attach the human impulse to achieve greatness. Instead, he redefines it so that we can see what it really means to be great. That is, greatness as God sees it. You see, this is a call to humility in service. It's a call to love what Jesus loves and do what Jesus does. Already in Luke's gospel, the people who have been held up as models of true greatness have been the marginalized and insignificant. A woman with a bad reputation, a pregnant virgin, a tax collector, an unclean woman, the people who seem great in the eyes of the world are not necessarily perceived in the same way by the king of God's, by the king of God's kingdom. If you are going to follow a crucified Messiah, a son of man who was delivered over to the hands of men, then you are going to have to accept that genuine greatness is going to look different than you might naturally think. 
At this moment in time, the world around us tells us to measure personal worth in terms of physical appearance, material possessions, professional or academic accomplishments, or even social media presence. That's the big one. Those are barometers of significance that can be understood quantified and diligently sought after. But Jesus is saying here that the truly great one is the one who is willing to humbly love the insignificant person. Consider this, perhaps the greatest person in our church is not the one who preaches, it's not the one who leads music, it's not the one who gives the most money, it's not the one who teaches Sunday school, etc., etc., Maybe it's the ordinary member who is willing to drive 15 minutes out of her way to pick up an elderly person who cannot attend the church gathering on their own. Maybe that's the greatest person. The way to find life is to deny yourself. The way to save your life is to lose it. How can it be that we who know the sacrificial love of Christ so often have the fingerprints of pride all over our lives. Why is it that we are so easily offended, so quick to anger when we don't get our way, so slow to serve those who cannot do anything for us? In light of Jesus' sacrifice, it should be inconceivable that a Christian would be consumed by a passion for his or her own glory but the disciples' tone-deaf argument about their own personal greatness reminds us that pride is a foe that we need to battle every day. How do we do that? By looking to Jesus and His death for us. I'm reminded of the words that Isaac Watts penned 300 years ago. Remain the prayer of every Christian still today. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. If you've not yet to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord this morning, turn from your, from your sin and receive the free redemption and reconciliation with God that He offers. If pride is deeply embedded in your heart this morning, ask the Lord to humble you to break down this stronghold in your life and give you the disposition of Christ. Simple call this morning. Behold Christ's glory. Become great. Pray with me.